This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with owner of Speedworks Bath, Alan Murdoch, a consultant for a host of Premiership rugby teams. Alan discusses the potential gains that can be made in the speed and agility field, his previous work within professional rugby at Bath, as well as the recovery process from ACL injuries and some successes he has had within this area. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. So, Alan, I'm excited for this. You're my first one back after annual leave, so regular listeners will realise that I haven't uh, posted for a couple of weeks, so apologies for that. Um, we've had a nice catch-up there, but how are things your end? All good? Mate, really good, thanks. Um, yeah, it's been uh, it's been, uh, it's been three or uh, two and a half years now since I left the world of pro sport um, and started up my own company and started up my own thing. And honestly, it's, it's been absolutely, it's been class. It's been class from a opportunity to refine my coaching process and exactly what my product is and understanding myself as a coach but it's also been pretty refreshing and scary and also understanding that I don't know very much about being a businessman as well and trying to fashion out business when you have never get taught any of that when you're just a regular old SNC coach in a, uh, at a Prem Rugby Club so um, yeah it's been it's been a fascinating few years mate and it's uh, yeah it's been it's been wonderful to see how the business has kind of kicked on and taken off so yeah good thanks. Yeah I always think particularly you haven't done this as well it'd be nice if they taught you more of this at school and trying to figure stuff out rather than trying oh. to scramble your way doing tax returns if you have to do all that type yeah, of stuff. Oh, but, yeah i've got some i've got some horror <laughs> stories about tax returns but yeah well those six but uh for people that maybe haven't come across you obviously uh i messaged you on social media which you got back to me on which was brilliant so thank you for that but you just want to explain to everyone a bit of a whistle-stop tour about who you are i guess what you currently do and then how you ended up getting to that point yeah for sure so i am the head coach at speedworks bath currently um, so that's my my company in, in Bath and we are a speed and agility and rehab consultancy. Um, so I got into that from being uh, head of rehab at Bath Rugby for a few years. Um, and prior to that, I was I led up the academy section at Bath Rugby. Um, and then prior to that, I kind of went through the usual uh, the usual route that a lot of a lot of young uh, young kind of practitioners are going through currently. Went to uni, did an internship went to Millfield to do that internship, coached for, God, I don't know, felt like slave labor, but it was like, it's like 50, 60 hours a week of just relentless coaching. Some of it absolutely horrendous, like crap level of coaching when I reflect on it. And gradually over the year that I was there, I think it got maybe a little bit better. Um, And I was able to kind of identify and kind of maybe refine my coaching persona and my coaching philosophy a little bit. Um, and, and then, yeah, from, from there, I moved into Bath Rugby and, and I was there for six years and I moved up through the ranks from junior assistant, uh, SNC coach, where I was basically just writing strength programs five by five on every variation of squat and deadlift and push and pull that you can imagine, uh, then started to realize that actually, uh, this type of stuff, albeit yes, it's important. It's absolutely not the be all and end all of athletic performance. So started asking a few more pertinent questions, got into the speed and agility and movement side of things, read 
everything you can possibly imagine on that on that topic listen to every podcast had some i was really fortunate to have some brilliant mentors um and still do and then uh, i was able to take that and and put it into uh, and plug it into what was basically a, a senior environment program at bath rugby that didn't have any of that stuff um and muddle my way through and fail a lot and succeed a bit and kind of figure out what worked and what didn't and then uh, and then eventually kind of ended up doing the rehab side of things before leaving to to go to Speedwalks Bath. Perfect. So yeah, loads of bits for us to pick up on there. Um, I know one of the things that we spoke about uh, before was the the ACL rehab type work, which we will come on to later. I think it's particularly pertinent with the, the Women's World Cup on at the moment and the number of injuries they get in that space. So it'd be really interesting to discuss that. But I think firstly, it'd be um, interesting to hear from you around the, the speed and agility type work is from your experience, why is it so important in, I guess, in elite rugby and elite sport? Um, and yeah, what's your experience? Can you just describe to us the, the, the experience that you've had of trying to create growth within that space? Yeah, I'll go for the, the first question first then. So um, I think it's absolutely pivotal. It's, it's a really interesting concept, I think, about how we look at athletic development and essentially what our jobs are as strength and conditioning and medical practitioners, et cetera. Like we are trying to enhance players' time availability to get better at their sport. Um, in some instances, we are trying to enhance the physical qualities and underpinnings of certain actions on the pitch that maybe they have gaps within their profile. And if we break that down, a lot of the work that's done in the gym really is just there to underpin and support some form or derivative of a high intensity action. So axial, decel, change direction, max speed. Um, and funnily enough, I don't think currently, uh, the certainly in my experience anyway, the profession looks at it from a top down. It looks at it very much from a bottom up perspective. So if I get super strong in squatting, then I will naturally get better at acceleration. Well, in a professional environment, that tends to not ring true so much like, the kind of law of diminishing returns has probably come already come up to get the players and that be getting stronger squat wise isn't probably going to enhance anything from a performance perspective they probably are already pretty damn strong um so understanding the importance of those activities reverse engineering the qualities that are associated to those activities whether it be for acceleration whether it be hip displacement system stiffness um, and the ability to be mobile and stable at the pelvis. Let's just say those are the big qualities that, that exist in terms of being able to accelerate well. Um, now, having a great posterior chain and relative strength measures might help with your hip displacement, but we also need to have a really strong and stable pelvis that allows us to separate the pelvis and extension and flexion and be able to create thigh exchange. We also need to be able to have incredibly good reactive and plyometric abilities to be reactive on the floor so that we can recycle our limb and do it again. I think understanding that gives speed and agility and those types of, of components of an athletic development program far more weight because from there, you can then invent your entire athletic development pathway associated to them. So to go back to your question, I think it's absolutely critical. And then recently in a consultancy that I've um, just reminded me, actually, a consultancy that I've just finished up there, um, with one of the prem teams the the previous year um, they had chronic chronic soft tissue issues 
Um, and associated with that problem or uh, that kind of that program was a complete and utter fear of high intensity actions, namely speed, but high intensity actions in general, to the point where it was, I, I still distinctly remember being asked to go into a meeting to discuss the level of stress that doing some ankling drills might have within the warm up on pitch. And this is a two hour meeting to talk about how potentially it could be destroying their players. But actually, looking back at it and having seen the program that I was involved in last year, um, where there was very much a, a heavy emphasis on speed and agility, which was led by me running that program, the soft tissue epidemic completely and utterly disappeared. So it goes back to this whole speed vaccine situation that people like to talk about. Like there is, there's a sweet spot, absolutely, and that's dependent and context specific on age, previous history, chronic training load, acute training load, all these types of things, but actually the elastic nature and the high impact, high stress, high intensity nature of speed and agility training acts as a brilliant training stimulus to start to raise the ceiling of tolerance for athletes. And I think when people talk speed and agility, they instantly think of people making breaks and people scoring tries or scoring goals, but it's twofold. It has a huge injury mitigation component to it. And it also has the performance side to it. So it's multifaceted. It's hugely important. It, it gives players confidence. It makes them more readily available if you do it right. And it also provides you with a with a team and a cohort that are able to complete activities faster than if they hadn't previously been involved in any kind of program like that. So, so yeah, it's, it's super important. So we'll come back to the idea around training loads because I think that's a really interesting um that concept and idea around actually training a little bit and I, i've heard some stories um which i've said on here before regarding jamie vardy and some of the findings they had around him coming from the non-league scene which was quite interesting um in terms of i guess speed in particular how much effect at the very top level top age groups you know international rugby players or people that are playing professional rugby can coach in or work within this area actually have can you in, like make players quicker uh, and, and how much to a degree can you make them quicker or yeah so just describe that to us if you if you can what that actually looks like in in layman's terms well, for possible. sure so i can give you the the perspective of working on a pro team um and then also the perspective of working one-to-one -one, which is obviously what i do day to day um so the the pro team examples from a consultancy just gone actually um and the answer was 4.6 percent um, so that was that was one acceleration training session a week, um, which was a combination of plyometrics, which was a real push to try and get that into the program. Like plyometrics is a scary word that people use, but honestly, it's just jumping. Like it starts off low and it progresses into getting something that's a bit more intense um, and often with shorter ground contacts. But if you can sprint, you can plyometric or you can jump. It's just the dosage that's important. But um, yeah, plyometrics involved in that program. Um, then we would do some profiled acceleration. So I'll talk to you about that in a sec. Um, and all in, those sessions would last 20 to 25 minutes, depending on how much whether the, the head coach was feeling generous or not. And across the course of six months um, with the pe people that were consistent. So I think there was 18 of them that consistently trained. Um, we had a four point. 4.6 or 4.7% increase in 10 meter performance. So that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big chunk for elite trainers or, or professionals or performers who are already have already been invested in a professional program for at least three or four or five years. Um, 
So the impact is pretty, pretty major. Um, we didn't get the opportunity to assess the impact of the max velocity stuff because it just it was so happened that it wasn't able to be done enough. Um, but even from a technical standpoint, um, the changes were absolutely massive. And I think one of the things that people, as an industry, we love the objectivity of it. So I can give you 4.6% as a, as a number. Um, but what I can't give you as a number is the players coming back after a big training session or a big training week or even a big training block and saying, do you know what, Al? I actually feel athletic. Like my niggles and my hip flexor are gone. Like I actually have got confidence to let it rip. Whereas before I would only go 85, 85, 87.5% because oh, I just didn't feel right. It didn't feel good. But actually now I can actually have a crack at it because mechanically and from a biomechanics perspective, I'm in a better position. I understand what I'm trying to achieve. That's something that's maybe missed off the conversation sometimes, I think, um, because it's not objective, objectifiable. You can't put a number on it. Um, but that's a, that's another thing. It's a whole effective, efficient chat where effective is is being able to do the test better and put down better scores. But efficiency, uh, maybe you maybe you do your 10 meters in the same time, but your efficiency has gone up because you're able to utilize your elastic system a bit better because of the positions you put yourself in. And all of a sudden you're able to repeat that 10 meter time, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times, not once. Um, and that's also pretty damn important for sport as well. So. And I guess it's understanding that not all players are going to be like a Christian Wade where they're able to, you know, dodge and dive between people and, you know, run in whatever speeds. But actually, if you can get across the board a 4.6, that inherently makes your entire team quicker and more agile, which the, you know, cumulative effect of that in terms of, you know, being able to make tackles or being able to create angles to create offloads or running lines that then has a cumulative effect over the 15 man that start the, the start the game compared to those coming on rather than just one person being an absolute rip snorter and the rest of them plodding around the pitch. Uh, absolutely. Like it's so important to raise the, the overall ceiling of, of your, of your team. Some people will respond better. Some people will respond slightly less. Um, but in general, you want to try and push that ceiling up. And one of the things that we did, like, it's going to sound so simple, but honestly, it's such a great profiling tool. So maybe it might help somebody. But I look at, and again, you can date, you can, you can get the 3D motion analysis on this. But honestly, I just use, I just watch it and use my coach's eye. Um, you can, somebody does ten meters, and that person, I'll use. I, I tweeted about it the other day. Ollie Lawrence, for example, like the guy is just a powerhouse. He's so strong but he's not very elastic. So he likes to spend a lot of time on the floor to utilize the qualities he's got. Now, he would be somebody that I call a snail, not because he's slow, but because he likes to be on the ground. Now, on the flip side of that, you've got another guy, let's call it Rory McConaughey. Um, from, we're, talking, we're talking Bath because we're two local Bath lads here. Um, Rory McConaughey is another winger. He's very fast too, but he does it in a completely different way because he's all tendon, he's all elastic, He's really tall. He's got long levers. He's the opposite profile to what Ollie Lawrence would be. And he goes straight up and he bounces vertically much quicker. So he actually has a better top end speed because that elastic kind of nature of how he moves is kind of uh, biased towards having a higher top end speed. He would be what I call a banana because he goes upright. He curves up very, very quickly and he, he rears up quickly. 
Now, you can profile your whole team like that. Some people like to stay low and, and their center of mass doesn't climb very much. Some people stand straight up and they like to bounce and their center of mass climbs up really, really quickly. Now, all you're going to do for your acceleration training is just angle or tilt their profile back towards the middle a little bit more. So for Ollie, we're going to do banded resistance acceleration around his waist. And every time he's doing any acceleration, I'm asking him to launch up and out and into the band. So I'm encouraging him to try and get a little bit more airtime and air-based strategy, whereas previously he loves to be on the ground pushing, whereas the center of mass doesn't go up. But for Rory, who likes to stand straight up, I'm going to put crisscross bands around his shoulders and actively try and pull him up out of his acceleration. And I'm going to ask him to fight against it so he can stay down and actually get back to the floor a bit earlier than if he was to just stand straight up. And just by implementing these two little profiling solutions or strategies, we start to change people back towards the middle of where their profile will maybe sit a little bit more optimally rather than being one side of a continuum or another. And just by doing that and then doing some other little things around their gym-based training to support it, and we see some really, really good changes in terms of the strategies of of our athletes. So yeah, it's um it's quite a it's quite a neat way to have a have an influence squad wide, but from an individualized perspective, which I think is the kind of the the certainly the the goal of of a lot of programs these days when I'm talking to any of the heads of performance. Yeah, I think you read my mind there because the profiling bit was going to be my next question. Okay. I guess just before we we detour slightly, um, I'd imagine within your squad as well, you're going to have some players that might see excessive results compared to this. So actually they've got biomechanical issues which you're able to support them with where all of a sudden it's like, okay, actually if I change the way that I drive or if I do this, the increase in speed um, and agility is going to be increased. Correct me if yeah. I'm wrong there. No, no, you're 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 100% right. It comes down to, well, anyway, for me, it comes down to two things. It comes down to, we call it hardware, software. So hardware being the physical qualities, software being the strategy or the kind of technical side of things. Now it's identifying where the gaps are within those two things. So you might have somebody who is super strong um, in the gym, but actually all they want to do is try and use that, use their quads. In rugby, it's especially popular because there's a lot of quad-heavy individuals there. They'll use their quads. They'll they'll showcase over-exaggerated shin roll and, and a low and a low kind of air-based strategy. They'll be attached to the ground. There'll be a lot of heavy touchdown distance. So that means a foot landing in front of them. Um, and they break before they roll over their center of mass rolls over their foot and then they do it again so it feels really muscly and strong but actually it's incredibly inefficient it might be fast for about two or three steps but after two or three steps actually their speed starts to decay really really quickly so identifying that actually the case here is it's, it's a lot of it is to do with the technical side of things um, that they actually they don't know what it feels like to orientate slightly more up and underpinning that is more of an elastic type approach. So are they doing their plyometrics? Are they doing all their ankle stiffness? Are they doing their spring mass model work in the gym? Have they got good isometric quad strength, et cetera? And then on the flip side, you've got the people who technically are good. They look pretty, but they're dead slow. Well, like, and and I've seen, honestly, I've seen so many of those um, because if you're coached from somebody who's got a speed and agility background and they coach you from 16 through to 18, 
and you're pretty plastic at 16 to 18, there's a pretty good chance that technically you're going to be doing a pretty good job if you're a team sport athlete. Like that's the nature of the beast. But actually, they don't have the they don't have the the hip and the posterior chain and the plantar flexion strength to actually support any form of hip displacement in the first place. So actually that person is going to benefit really super quickly from just going into the gym and getting super strong in that area. And then the biggest gains are the ones where you can match the two together. You've got the technical, the technical influence, which would be from that profiling side of things. And then you can identify where their gaps are, train their physical qualities. And all of a sudden you get this nice meat in the middle and, and their speeds tend, end up taking off, which, um, which is kind of what we're afforded the luxury of doing um, in the one-to-one world at Speedworks. So. And then you mentioned a little bit there around, I guess, the training load and, and whatnot of this type of work. So you mentioned, I guess, in-season, which is going to look very different to off off-season, in-season with them having ties with analysis and, I guess, on-field pitch work and, and rest and recovery and all the other bits. I guess at off-season, they probably don't have as much of a tie there and can focus on maybe some development areas and type of that type of work can you just uh, uh, describe to us what both of those things would look like I guess one in reality so what reality actually looks like and then secondly in an ideal scenario if you were going to get a team of absolute flyers I mentioned it a podcast a few weeks ago the Miami Dolphins this year are going to be a team of absolute flyers I'm a Miami Dolphins fan so I'm looking forward to it but yeah if you were to create a team of absolute flyers what would the ideal type of work in this space be like I'll answer the reality question first. So it's it's a it's a humbling experience. Nah, the, the reality, honestly, in my experience, um, the reality is in general, most mo I'm saying most, there are some out there who are brilliant at this, but most heads of performance that I've spoken to are a little taken aback when I'm suggesting that we are doing like a proper max velocity session where athletes are flying fast and hard. Um, and then we're also gonna do a maximal acceleration session that builds from short to long being five meters out to 15 to 20 meters. And those two things are going to happen in the same week as your strength work, your power work and a plyometric program and a training program and all this kind of stuff. Um, from my experience, the best way to get what you want and to make the, make the ideal situation, the, the reality is to lay that is to lay it out and say, look, this is going to take 20 to 25 minutes per session, maybe 30 minutes for a max velocity session if you are graced with flyers. I think that's something to touch on. That If you do have super fast people in your squad, they are different than the other people in your squad and they need the, um, they need the time to prepare. They need the recognition that they are genuinely different animals. Their fiber composition is different. Their rate of force expression is different. Their makeup and physical makeup is different. The amount of time it takes them to feel like they're ready to sprint is different. If you've got somebody who's super slow, like a, I don't want to single out the props, but I'm going to do it. Sorry. Um, they don't need half an hour to prepare to do some max velocity efforts. They need 10 minutes of directed prep and then they can truck through it. But your, your wingers of this world, your Anthony Watsons of this world, Man, good luck trying to get a guy like that ready to actually let rip in 15 minutes. Not going to happen. You need more time than that. Um, so the reality of the situation is the profiling becomes absolutely critical because it means that you start to individualize and give athletes what they actually need. Um, 
the thing that had the biggest influence for me in my time working in pro sport, but then consulting to different clubs is giving athletes the opportunity for 10 minutes of prep in the gym before going on the pitch. The pitch should be, in my opinion, should be for actually doing drills. The gym, 10 minutes before getting on the pitch, should be for this prep with purpose framework idea that actually, if you know that you struggle with hip extension, you know you struggle with generating range at the pelvis, your 10 minutes specifically allows you to focus on that. Otherwise, you're going to spend the first 10 minutes of your pitch session, of which in reality, you've only got 15 minutes, trying to just warm up to the feeling of what you need to do to be able to run fast in the first place. Um, so the reality is you're probably not getting as much time as you'd like. But if you prep accordingly and you profile your stuff um, and you profile your sessions to make it as individually as possible uh, or individual as possible, then you get way more out of it. Um, in terms of max speed, it's so much easier than I think what the common misconception maybe is. Like a few upright drills, a few scissors and dribbles, which are done extensively. So that means um, they're speed mechanics drills, essentially, which is like high knees and scissor bounds. Um, resisted to unresisted. So you take the velocity out of it and then you add velocity back in by unresisting it. Um, and then going through some wickets, which is a constraint-based approach to coaching speed training, which is going to kind of transition things to more front side um, and allowing boys the opportunity or girls the opportunity to feel what it's like to be a bit more elastic because the chances are that your squad are going to neurally be a little dampened by all the training you're probably doing in season and the fatigue that games that, uh, that games bring with it. Um, and that can be done in, honestly, 15, 20 minutes. Um, so I don't think you actually need as long as what people think you do. It's just got to be well-structured and the prep has got to be aligned to what the person needs. Um, and then the difference between in-season and pre-season Pre-season, you can really build. So, for example, this year, because of the Rugby World Cup, there's a huge, um, huge pre-season going on right now. You don't need to run fast early. You can you can build gradually with loads of extensive drills. So extensive drills means doing lots of volume of technical work that's gradually acting almost as a plyometric stimulus where you're coaching and teaching them the right technique. But from a physical standpoint, you're bringing them up as well. And over time, you can phase out the volume and bring in the intensity from dribble bleeds to wickets to flying 10s and 20s to races. And again, there's a continuum. It's all speed training, but the continuum of that is that it's getting more stressful. So obviously starting from static is more stressful than doing a fly because you've got to break inertia and the likelihood of attaining good positions and efficient positions is a bit less, all that kind of stuff. And you gradually phase it through. And there's no reason why you can't be getting three good sessions in a week. Um, and for team sport, I would probably bias it to Axel D-cell, um, change direction potentially, max velocity stimulus, and then bookend the week with another Axel D-cell session. So that's the that's the kind of fundamental differences, higher volumes in off season. And how hard is it to take into the consideration games within that then? You look at football, for example, where some teams end up playing three times a week. Rugby, I know, obviously has a bit more of a rest period, but you look at when people going off to Six Nations and there was a time, particularly in the last couple of years, where it seemed like the number of players breaking down at England camps was crazy. But how, how do you take into consideration the fact that you have obviously got fixtures coming up and you want to be that's your ultimate goal is to perform them. But obviously these are gains that you know are going to help you in the game. 
but it's trying to figure out when's the right time to do it. So I guess assuming you've got a three o'clock Saturday kickoff or two o'clock Saturday kickoff for a game for rugby, what would you look, what would the speed work look like throughout the week in terms of, is it intense early on and then easing off? Is it more functional when you're in season? Um, I know you obviously spoke about it a little bit there. Right. Um, good question. This goes around the this does the rounds, this this type of question and approach. And like everything, I think it goes in it goes in cycles. So there'll be a fad of one type of thing, and then it'll change, and then the approach will change. And it'll be, for example, recently it's been Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday training, Thursday off, Friday short and sharp, play on a Saturday. And prior to that, it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off, Thursday hard and sharp, Friday captain's run but almost pretty much off and then play on a Saturday and it's kind of moved back towards that now um, but the most recent experience that I've had and one that worked really well um, was doing the like the real high-end speed work on a Thursday so closer to the game so actually tapering the week from an intensity perspective so you actually brought the nervous system up to a crescendo at the end of the week and doing our heavy acceleration, loaded accelerations, decel and change of direction work at the start of the week. And that was from a from a periodization point of view, that was taken into consideration, tapering the week from a nervous system point of view, but also from how training would be played out as well. So on a Thursday in one of the clubs that I was working at, um, they would actually they would open the game out completely. So there was opportunities for big spaces done very fast but for short durations training would only last 45 minutes for example whereas monday tuesday was very much an extensive training uh, approach where it was longer it was a bit slower there was more detail they were basically installing the front end of the week and that's where the more strength orientated forced orientated type work from the accelerations etc went in and i was toying with the idea of doing the opposite so having your max velocity work on the Tuesday and then so that the big stress, the big neural stress earlier in the week and then going back to our loaded accelerations and, and shorter duration work or shorter distance work on the Thursday. But actually having spoken to the boys and watched the response from a soft tissue and an in-game velocity perspective as well, which I think is important, actually having the, having the really fast stuff closer towards the... Um, towards the game worked an absolute treat and imagine that that's a similar taping uh tapering in terms of what the athletes do right if you look at like your your sprinters they'll go through long periods of time when they're building bases building bases and then as they get up to competition they're trying to obviously make sure they're in prime condition for that period now i appreciate games are obviously every week but it's a similar principle in terms of we're not going to go really fast in january and then it go slow in february then really fast in march you're going to crescend up exactly that um i'm conscious of time so obviously we, we mentioned around the acl stuff so i will retweet this for, for people that are listening you put a fascinating timeline out on on your uh social media regarding the work you've done with anthony watson on on recovering from his acl injury um and obviously the fact that he's pretty fast if we're <laughs> being honest so i guess firstly can you explain to people um 
I guess, around the, the ACL um, world, what commonly happens in terms of injury? Because it's probably something, me included, you hear going, oh, he's done an ACL or she's done an ACL. You don't actually understand the scientific principles behind it. And then maybe describe to us some of the challenges people have when trying to recover from it and some of the work that you've obviously done with with players um, such as Anthony Watson, which has allowed them to go and have really good success and be robust moving forward. Yeah, so the, the the biggest common one is some kind of like pivot shift. So it's going to be some type of extended leg with a rotation. Usually, if now the literature is getting a little bit better, but you, you don't necessarily need the literature to see it, to be honest. If you go and watch the, the clips of, sadly, there's a lot people love to share clips of people busting their ACLs on Twitter. It's, it's almost like a hobby for some people. But they're probably looking around. They're probably, their cognitive or attentional reserve is probably taken up by some external task. And that moment of stiff leg, um, where the hip is extended, the knee is fairly is fairly extended. They've absorbed a large force off either a cut or a landing. They've rotated in one direction. Their foot has externally rotated, and all of a sudden they've they've crumbled in a heap. That's your that's your classic ACL. Um, now, in terms of rehabbing that, um, you obviously you undergo surgery. Uh, or, or a lot of people do. Sometimes it's done conservatively, but a lot of people will go under ACL reconstruction. And after that surgery, um, what will happen is the knee will swell up, uh, usually, anyway. Uh, the knee will swell up and the athlete will have lost a lot of their quad size um, because of inactivity and lack of activation because somebody has literally dug into your knee and cut it around. Um, and they will have lost a lot of extension and flexion. Um, and I think one of the, one of the things that I see a lot of, I deal with a lot of ACLs of like high end professionals and the one, the one commonality of actually there's two, the two common things that walk in through the, through the gym door is you've got somebody who never regained knee function. So they are having problems. They only come to me if they, if they tend to have problems with their, with their club rehab. So they haven't regained knee extension or knee flexion it can vary um but if you don't regain that your knee essentially doesn't work and if it doesn't work you can't run properly and if you can't run properly your biomechanics change and if your biomechanics change something will go pop almost almost guaranteed um so that's the that's the big one so initially off the back of that acl surgery the biggest thing that everybody should be focusing on is regaining flexion and extension and function of the knee, reducing swelling so we can actually get quad activation. And then after that, it's about regaining quad activation and quad size. That's actually, as long as you've got a quiet knee, that's actually really quite simple to do. Um, lots of different strategies, occlusion training, high rep resistance training, all that kind of stuff that people I'm sure are listening to or are aware of. Um, but the biggest thing, the biggest issue is that... There's a there's a thought. It's, I've started calling it traditional rehab, um, or the old school approach, and it basically goes through this kind of checklist. And I got taught this when I was coming through the UK SEA, and then I got taught it again when I moved into um, professional sports club where I was dealing with rehabbers, albeit lower down the pathway, but I was still dealing with them. And it was get them strong. Once you've got them strong, get them jumping. Once you've got them jumping 
get them doing their speed mechanics. And once you've got them doing your speed mechanics, now we can go out onto the pitch. And if we're on the pitch, we're going to start slow and we're gradually going to build up velocity and speed until we are at the point where they can they can tolerate sprinting and changing direction. And once we've got there, we'll put them into bouts of training. And then once we've got there and they can tolerate that, then we'll put them into a game gradually. Now, that's the old school approach. Now, the old school approach is something that I've been coining um, uh, fit to fast in terms of the, the approach to running. So they wanted to get people anaerobically fit first before then trying to get them fast and regain quite often what would be the pivotable or the pivotal quality that made them good in the first place, which was some kind of speed-related quality. Um, but the problem with that is if you've tried to get them fit first and you've not exposed them to any high volume or duration of speed mechanics, you're essentially just pumping them full of inefficient mechanics and loads of fatigue. So what ends up happening is once you try and get up to the point where you need full knee flexion or you need full knee extension and you need the right motor patterns to be able to run fast, you haven't trained them to be able to do it in the first place. So you're never, ever going to have an athlete who returns to training who says, I am so sharp. I feel so fast and I feel absolutely class on day one. And the old school ACL rehab would come with this tagline. Uh, they'll, they'll get like they'll get a few games in just to get the rust off. And that to me is a massive red flag of what the old process used to look like. Now, I use something called a speed-based approach, which isn't at its core very dissimilar to what I've just explained. We have objective criteria around strength, around power, around plyometrics, um, all that stuff. But we just start everything super, super early with an understanding that some of the qualities underpin running really fast. So, for example, you would start your speed mechanics work. And this is the, the timeline we alluded to or you alluded to about Anthony. Like we would already started some of our qualities to, to underpin fast sprinting at week six. And we returned to feet at week 10. And that stuff was all around speed mechanics work about introducing dribbles and scissors. And even though it's in small amplitude, low intensity, low stress format, it's retraining the motor patterns and gradually exposing the system for what's to come further down the line, which is just so imperative. Um, and then we return to change of direction at week 12, um, which again, in, in historical approaches would be considered just absolute madness. But if you've been doing the lateral hip strength and the isometric uh, lateral uh, lateral strength, and you've been doing the trunk control and the hip lock drills and the and the ability to laterally flex and compress and extend uh, through all the spinal engine work, well, then you've actually trained all the qualities that underpin the action. You just haven't done the action yet. And you can do that and start that much, much earlier. And it's a really, really pivotal and important shift in mindset, or at least it has been for me, to understand actually the timelines that we have been told in the past, albeit we have to respect them, and I do respect them, the new approach, the speed-based approach, will have your athletes PBing their max velocities four and a half, five months down the line, which was the case with Anthony, um, who had spent three months prior to drilling and training all the qualities that allow him to change direction fast, be it hip lock, lateral hip strength, for acceleration, be it loads of hip displacement and pelvic range of motion, for max velocity, be system stiffness and elastic qualities, and be able to train those motor patterns consistently for a long period of time. And if you can do that, 
then you can return to running fast. And if you can run fast, then it's actually much easier to tolerate the demands of training from a output point of view and an intensity point of view. Um, and you end up with an athlete who returns to training. If it's if the integration is done well, who actually turns up day one to training super sharp, which was the was the case with with that particular athlete. So there's a there's a bit of a difference between the two approaches. And one I think is is old school, one is new school, and the new school is significantly more applicable these days, I think, with what we know. So and how um how do you go around um, I guess explaining that to other physios or having athletes explain that to other physios because obviously you're doing a little bit of consultancy work you may have someone that's really aligned to those traditional ideas or has yeah. worked with athletes previously and gone well no this is what I've gotten back to but ultimately athletes may come to you because there is an issue or they feel yeah. like there's an issue or they want some support because of a previous relationship or for a whole host of reasons and you're I guess swimming against the tide a little bit of what the club wants. So how do you bridge and collaborate in that space? Um, I get asked this loads. The honest answer is it's really, really difficult. Um, the other honest answer is some people just don't want to listen, and those are battles that, in, for for my instance, are probably not worth f- fighting, to be honest. Um, but the ones where it has worked and there's been a considerable shift in approach and perspective is there's nothing like objectivity and data to back up an argument. Sometimes you can't fight the you can't fight the science. You can fight somebody's opinion, but you can't fight the data and the science. And luckily, we've got so many cases now of um, for example, we're we're using a new new software called um Speed Solutions, which is an AI software to, to analyze running. Um, but basically it breaks down the running cycle that tells you exactly where the deficits lie in terms of um in terms of thigh angular velocities and, and what that might mean in terms of the balance of the running cycle and all these different things relative to these three qualities called projects which react. But what we found, anybody who's come to us who has gone through the traditional ap- approach but still doesn't feel sharp, so they've then come to me, actually on the first analysis of them running, and usually they've got up to the speed where they're running relatively quickly, they still have massive asymmetries, glaring asymmetries that are only really exposed once they go above X percentage of, of velocity, so call it 80%. But if you go through the new approach or the speed brace approach, those asymmetries, which are hugely important because more than likely athletes break down or have issues when it's high intensity actions that they're doing, they don't break down just jogging to go and get uh throw in or jogging to the line out they break down when they're making a line break they're trying to accelerate hard and then cut or decelerate hard there's some kind of intensity aligned to the moment of them breaking down what we found is if you've gone through a speed-based approach the asymmetries within high intensity activities are far far less so actually showcasing that that data and that that evidence is pretty powerful to say look I appreciate that you've had this experience. I understand that this is what you've done and you've rehabbed a lot of people and this is great. However, we now have the evidence to say there are still gaps because you were never able to spend enough time on stuff that truly matters. So if we flip it, we can spend more time on that. We can make them more efficient. We can make them run faster. We can educate them because there's a lot of resources around that side of things. 
And then we can start to drip into what is a classically your conditioning model of MES running, slow running, all that kind of stuff. Because we do still need to appreciate the need to get the meters up to tolerate the demands of training loads in the first place. So that would be that would be the message in the conversation. And in the environments where, and I'm doing one at the moment, um, where we are changing systems and changing approaches, the data is your best friend. So... That's and that's what we... science is, right? You respond to the data that you've got. That's why science progresses the way it does and medicine exactly. and whatnot. So, yeah, it's a really good starting point. I'm conscious of time. So last one for me, which is if I was to speak to the athletes that you work with, how would you hope they described you in three words and why? Oh, bloody hell. Didn't know that was coming. <laughs> uh, oh, Supportive um what else would they describe what would i hope they describe me as um professional and good perfect listen i really appreciate your time a great uh conversation and as you said we're both near bath so maybe meet up for a beer at some point but yeah i really appreciate it mate no worries thanks for having me on Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.